This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And for many of us, a fall might be nothing more than some scrapes and bruises. But for older adults, for people who are age 65 and above, falls can be detrimental as they are one of the main contributors to disability and morbidity among older adults. But in September last year, um, the World Falls Task Force, which is composed of experts from um, 39 countries, published the World Guidelines for Falls Prevention in Older Adults and this is, I understand, to provide a framework so that we can better prevent and manage falls among older adults. So here to share more about um, that is consultant geriatrician, Professor Dr. Tan Mopin, who was also part of the steering committee and the lower and middle income countries working group in the development of the guidelines. Thank you so much for joining me today, Prof. Thank you for inviting me. And it's, a, it's actually a real delight to be able to actually share actually a major achievement when it comes to a lower middle income country like Malaysia to actually be included in part of the world guidelines. Mm. And I do want to get into the guidelines in a bit. But first, Prof, let's talk about falls itself, right? It's something that I think we hear on and off, you know, but um, and, and something that we sort of accept as sometimes part and parcel of growing older, but how common are falls, um, especially among our older adult population here? Okay, so we actually have um, some clues. We do have the National Health and Mobility Survey 2018. They, they call it the elderly or the older persons. Uh, so it's a Malaysian data, representative sample of 3,000 people over the age of 60 throughout Malaysia, every state included, and one in six of them actually admitted to having fallen in the past year. But when we looked at the uh, Klang Valley data, where we collected very detailed information on older people aged 55 years and over, living around uh, the, the University of Malaya Medical Center, um, they actually, we asked 1,500 of them, have you fallen in the past year? And about one in five of them said yes. So that's 55 and over. And then what we found is one in four over the age of 65 will have fallen in the past year, and one in three over 75 would have fallen in the past year. So whatever the case, whether it's one in three or one in four, one in five, one in six, it's still quite a lot. Mm -hmm. mm. I mentioned earlier that falls are a contributor to disability and morbidity among older adults. Um, could you put that into, uh, could you give us some examples, Prof? How does a fall, whether or not it was bad, right? How does that impact the health and quality of life for an older adult? Oh, it's big. Yeah, so when you um, generally the quotable figure will be one billion US dollars spent uh, a year due to fall related admissions, mm -hmm. and that's just on healthcare cost alone in 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 the United States. So it's a huge cost, and then you haven't thought about the disability cost afterwards, loss of income uh, from that care from the caregivers. So when we talk about Malaysia. We do know that one in four people presenting with a fall to the accident and emergency department are no longer alive after one year. So the statistics are scary because you're talking about something that is nowadays worse in prognosis than cancer. Then uh, the other thing would actually, that happens is they're also more disabled after a fall. So when we call them up six months later after one A&E uh, presentation, they basically are more likely to be disabled. Um, so they need more help to, uh, to look after themselves on a daily basis. But then sometimes they actually injure themselves quite badly. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, of course, everyone's afraid about the bleed in the brain. I've just lost a very close friend from that, uh, bled into the brain and passed away. 
And uh, sometimes it's a break fracture of the hip. And that's also extremely debilitating because the hip is simply the biggest bone in the body. Mm -hmm. And for it to mend afterwards is extremely difficult because you need to use that leg, you know, to stand on. If you don't, if you're unable to stand on that leg for a few weeks or months, then there's a lot of deterioration that happens. To mend that really big bone is very tricky and it might not mend properly. So we also see that one in four people after a hip fracture are no longer alive after one year. And the disability level will be through the roof. Very few of them uh, uh, actually return to independent living. And of course, bleed in the brain is potentially fatal. But even if it's not fatal, for them to be independent after a bleed in the brain is actually uh, not, not likely. Hmm. What does falls prevention and management currently look like in the Malaysian healthcare system? You know, And from there, what are we doing well? What are we doing not so well? Okay, we've literally um, started only about uh, you know, less than 10 years ago when it looks at false prevention services. So when other international settings look at this, actually we're doing pretty well. So, you know, we now have uh, from, from zero, uh, we now have a, a false uh, special interest group um, that actually meets on an annual basis. So our last meeting happened on the 1st of October, where we actually had nearly 300 people meet and they're multi-agency. Um, so we now have people in every single state we call them fall practitioners. Mm -hmm. They are occupational therapists, physiotherapists, doctors, um, um, and also we are involving uh, psychologists, counsellors, um, and exercise people, and also uh, people from the industry to help us uh, try and deal with uh, primary falls prevention. So prevention, preventing falls uh, in um, in the community setting before it happens, and also after one fall. Uh, that's resulted in an injury or we find that you fall a little bit often. There are also now services in many places to deal with this. Of course, uh, the depth of the services is not there and we could do a whole lot better. But what is probably the poor pride of Malaysia is the first World Congress mm -hmm. in Falls and Postural Stability was hosted by Malaysia. So that occurred in December uh, in 2019. So precisely uh, four years ago. So we're extremely proud, uh, precisely three years ago, just before the pandemic. So we are very, very, very proud of the achievement. And it was during, because it was during that meeting that the world guidelines mm -hmm. was conceived. So if anything, the world guidelines was, the idea of the world guidelines was born in Malaysia. Mm. And that's that's really a, a great achievement because we have we have a global set of guidelines that I understand was developed by experts from different countries, different mm -hmm. um, backgrounds, different um, coming from different um, place, places with different types of resources as well, right? Bringing their own yes. expertise into this. Um, and and but but keeping it back to Malaysia for now, um, Prof. You know you've mentioned a lot about what we've done well, but what are the gaps that, are, or are there any gaps that you still see, whether it's in our healthcare system? or in the community setting when it comes to addressing faults? Yeah, um, it's still very much quite a blank canvas with a bit of paint here and there, mm -hmm. you know, so that even the bits that are painted don't quite join up. So mm -hmm. there's still a lot more work to be done. But um, considering that the resources that has been put in, I think uh, we have done a lot. Uh, but um, And thank you to all the agencies that supported us. Um, but we really could do a lot more. Yeah, so uh, so basically, we, what we don't even have is a false service in every state. So not all states actually have a dedicated false prevention uh, services. 
um, and not every state has a champion for falls. Um, of course, it's always uh, it's always uh, KL centric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, and then uh, even if we do have services in falls, they tend to be hospital centric. Yeah. So um, so basically patient actually have to go to the hospital to be assessed uh, by we call a multidisciplinary team or a fall practitioner and then um, and the services are limited so not everyone know of the service to start with and not everyone gets referred to the service even if it's available because of long waiting list accessibility you know imagine if they've fallen they don't really want to go out mm-hmm. then you ask them to come to hospital they're like mm, might fall again on the way no don't want to go so um so we could do with a lot more community-based services that are accessible and then uh, of course we need to train a huge number of uh health professionals so we tend to some people tend to say false physiotherapy but it's not true because mm-hmm. uh, we we I think from my previous appearances, uh, if you've heard what we've talked about, falls is um, generally many causes. So the older person with balance problems probably won't, um, it's not that likely to fall because they know balance not so good. So they'll be very careful and take mm. extra precautions. But let's say if they have a balance problem and they can't see that well, so then the risk factors multiply. So a person with a fall tends to have, we call it multiple risk factors. And so we need to deal with it in a multidisciplinary way. So we need lots of healthcare professionals to have special training and to know how to work together in order to make fall prevention successful. I want to zone in on that community aspect that you mentioned, Prof. I think a lot of us are familiar or, or might have an idea of what it might look like in a hospital setting because you have all your healthcare professionals in one place, right? Um, mm. But in the community setting, what might that look like? Okay, so um, that, that you can actually access it at, at various levels. And that's the beauty, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You just use your local resources and you can impact on, you can have huge impact on the population using whatever you have in existence. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. So, um, What's most important is, of course, primary prevention to stop them from falling in the first place. Mm-hmm. So um, um, one very simple approach is what's already been done in many communities to encourage older people to go out to the park to exercise every morning. And uh, there are pockets of very good examples where the local councils work very well with the local exercise uh, trainers. They tend to be older people uh, who actually are specifically trained to deliver exercises uh, for older people. Yeah. So they uh, they go to the park and there will be park uh, there will be uh, park gymnastics you know open air gymnastics tai chi uh, park dancing um, and some some less commonly heard things like uh, qigong xiang gong um, and then uh, nowadays uh, even in the some Malay communities they're doing silat that's specifically mm-hmm. catered to older people so um, so we actually have a lot of exercise groups now that's happening in in, in the community but simply not enough. Not everybody is able to access an exercise group because not everybody lives within walking distance of a park Mm. or an outdoor area, which is actually providing these for free or virtually free. Yeah, so we need more of these efforts to be supported by local councils. So that's very simple. Uh, And then we should also arm uh, general practitioners and uh, uh, government health clinics with uh, specially trained uh, professionals who know how to assess for false risk. So we have already got tools that allows them to ask a few questions, do a few tests. So if they've had one fall, 
uh, what we recommend is to just test the balance and the walking. If that's abnormal, if it's only just one fall, mm-hmm. then they uh, they just send them to the physiotherapist. But if it's one fall uh, and they, there's no balance problems and they've not fallen any other times, then just watch them, maybe give them a bit of advice about healthy lifestyle and also uh, how to maintain the strength of their bones. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, uh, and then hopefully that they go back to normal. But if they have had two or more falls, one fall with injury, or they, um, and uh, then they need to be referred to a tertiary uh, hospital service for further assessments. So in the primary care setting, there's already a lot they can do to try and screen for false risks and, and reduce falls in the population. Mm. And it's ultimately about prioritizing who needs to see the specialist, isn't it? Because um, it goes back once again to the issue that we're overburdened, we're underfunded, um, everyone is short-staffed. And and so we want to make sure that where we can prevent, where we can help them with as little, um, where we can help them as minimally as possible to to let them keep living a quality life, then we can keep them in that state, not let it worsen to the point where they need to see someone like you, right? Yes, that's right. So we want to demedicalize old age. And yes. Old age is not synonymous with ill health. Yeah. So if you can demedicalize old age, allow them to actually get only the services that they want rather than queue long, long time mm-hmm. to see a false practitioner. And we don't know what they're like until they, when they come to the top of the queue, mm-hmm. um, they might have deconditioned already. So what we see is after one fall, even though they didn't injure themselves, and it was probably an accident, the whole ecosystem, you know, the whole patient's ecosystem goes into a fear of falling mode. So not only does the older person not want to move, they are disallowed from moving because they're afraid they will fall again. So then um, they were deconditioned and become more and more disabled. And that really impacts their self-esteem and their quality of life. But And that's number one. But then, it re- for the for the per- people who have to then provide for the older person, it's a huge economic uh, and psychological cost as well as social cost to them. Um, so we cannot afford to to continue to manage falls in this way. So you know what we want is you have a fall um, uh, and then brush yourself off, go and have a quick checkup, everything okay, mm-hmm. then carry on life as normal. All right, let's go for a quick break now, Prof, and continue this discussion when we come back and I'll ask you more about the World Guidelines for Falls Prevention. I'm speaking today to Professor Dr. Tan Mopin, Consultant Geriatrician at University Malaya Medical Centre and keep it right here on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. On the show with me today is Professor Dr. Tan Mopin, consultant geriatrician with University Malaya Medical Center, and she's also a member of the steering committee for the World Falls Guidelines, which um, we are talking about today. Now, before the break, we were um, I was talking to Prof more broadly about falls, um, how common they are, and why it's important for us to pick them up early, for us to manage patients before they decondition to the point where it's very hard for them to get back to a quality of life that's comfortable for them, that they're still mobile and able to move around. Um, but before the break, Prof, you also you were talking very briefly about the World Falls Guideline, which you said it's a huge um, achievement for Malaysia, considering that it was first conceived here um, back in 2019 when we held the first World Congress on Falls. Um, and then um, now you were also part of the um, development process for the guidelines. Now, tell me a bit about the guidelines, right? What is it about? What are the key recommendations? 
Okay, so um, this is a bit of a long story. Mm -hmm. So the World Falls Guidelines basically came about because um, the last set of guidelines that is considered considered international uh, was actually the American and the British Geriatric Society's uh, joint guidelines. And that was published in 2009, the last revise. So 10 years already. And then um, across the world, does not only now just revolve around Britain and the UK, UK and the US. Mm -hmm. The rest of the world also needs a guidelines. And um, so, uh, and then different parts of the world seem to do different things and have different strengths. So when we met uh, in Kuala Lumpur, it, it became very apparent. And so the idea of actually bringing everyone together came about, uh, and it was actually Manuel Montero Adasso who, uh, who, uh, from uh, Canada, who, who said that um, she would be able to obtain a little bit of support from the Canadian government to help us put together this world guidelines. And so he came up with a small team who then connected all these world experts uh, from 96 world experts eventually because it just grew and grew and grew. We started with a co small core group mm -hmm. and it just grew and grew to 96 world experts uh, from nearly 50 countries worldwide to actually meet on a regular basis. But of course, it needs some form of coordination. So we actually formed 12 working groups. Mm -hmm. And then the 12 working groups were not enough. We found there was another 10 areas wasn't covered. So we called them ad hoc. Uh, ad hoc uh, guidelines because mm -hmm. we just put something up first that sounds reasonable and the idea is that at the end of um, a short period of time we can see where these guidelines are lacking and we need a second version. So this is by not by no means completely finished product but how long can we keep working on something right? <laughs> so three years later it's come out and um, it the whole idea is getting all the world false experts together mm -hmm. and the importance of the document now uh, is uh, uh, is to come up is that the world has a common set of recommendations on how to do things so um, and but the most important thing is we have a set of documents to help us all lobby for resources to try and prevent falls which is a global issues and then uh, we also highlighted gaps and the biggest gap of course mm -hmm. is management of falls in developing countries or lower middle income countries as the world uh, bank calls it and um, we but by the way all the research all the output research output now in the lower middle income countries is actually going up very fast mm -hmm. but it's totally dwarfed by what's by what's available from the the western countries and of course the quality of the evidence is not comparable so the big gap is that we have most pe older people now live in developing countries. Mm -hmm. whereas, so, so, um, whereas uh, the uh, guidelines and the research are more only relevant to uh, to the people living in developed countries. So, um, so with a minimal amount of with a, with the limited amount of research that we have available, we highlighted areas that we can make recommendations on. So, number one. Uh, we actually found that older people will not go to the doctor after a fall. I'm sure most people will identify with that. They'll <laughs> go to the tukang urut, you know, go and have urut urut, um, or they go to the uh, 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 Chinese sincere uh, or the osteopath to get their bone fixed, in. Uh, but they never go and see a doctor. So, and even if they turn up to a doc a healthcare setting with a, a, an injury, um, that doctor might be an orthopedic surgeon or an emergency doctor or a general practitioner will fix the injury 
but they forgot how to actually fix the reason why they got the injury in the first place. Mm, you're just addressing so what, the symptom. Just addressing the problem. So what we're recommending is uh, opportunistic screening. So every time you encounter a healthcare professional, there should be a standard question. Have you fallen in the past year to act, um, so that we can actually pick up older people who have high risk of falls. And having had a fall in the past year is actually uh, one of the major uh, risk factors for future falls. So we want to make it simple. Of course, you can ask more questions, but one question in health and resources, resource limited settings is uh, the best way to go at the moment. So, um, and then they are, then there's an algorithm once mm -hmm. we've looked that up. Uh, then they actually test their balance and their walking. Mm -hmm. If uh, that is abnormal, they can send to a physiotherapist. But if the if they've had two or more falls, or that falls or that fall resulted in having to see a doctor or going to the emergency department, then they already need to be seen in a hospital for more detailed falls risk assessment because they're likely to have what we call a multifactorial fall. So they'll have several problems. Like maybe they have the drugs. Um, the drugs are causing problems, so they have a when they get up, their blood pressure drops. Uh, in addition to balance problems, they might need cataracts doing. Um, they might have a problem with the heart, which is potentially life-threatening, and we can fix that very easily uh, by putting in a pacemaker. So though this, um, the small group that have high-risk falls can then be directed to the right place. Uh, and, and then because we've highlighted the risks, they should be seen sooner. They can jump the tube. Because at the moment, otherwise, it's totally indiscriminate, you know. Mm -hmm. Everybody goes to the back of the queue. Whether you need to queue or not, nobody knows. Yeah, mm -hmm. so um, so the then the other thing uh, that we are recommending is that uh, for lower middle income country, the specific risk factors that are more prominent. And one, of course, is environment, you know. Our environment is very high risk. Our houses are cluttered and overcrowded in general. Uh, and then uh, our pavements are very dangerous. So um, after a uh, fall indoors, um, there might be a good idea to actually have to actually uh, look at your environment, living environment to see whether, whether how we can improve that and reduce future falls. But, uh, the other things are diabetes, obesity, um, and memory problems. So for things, environment, obesity, diabetes, and memory problems. So we do find that obesity, diabetes, and memory problems are more prominent in lower middle income countries because education is a strong risk factor. Lower education is a strong risk factor for, uh, for dementia. And then uh, with diabetes and obesity, it is very much a lower middle income problem. People don't perceive that as it is, but actually the diabetes problem in Malaysia is very high. Mm -hmm. And so it's so it, uh, is it um, and, and other many other middle income countries as well. And then obesity, I think we all know about the obesity problem in the middle income country like Malaysia. So those are risk factors that we need to pay specific attention to. And then there's another thing that we need to consider. So uh, a lot of uh, interven medical interventions are very expensive. And uh, in, in, in lower middle income countries, they might not understand that just because it's uh, just because it's expensive doesn't mean that it's very good. Yeah, so we actually advise that people use freely available assessment tools to address false risks because there are lots of freely available tools mm -hmm. and many research uh, setting centres have already published the tools and make it freely available. So no need to pay for things. If you have limited resources, the resources are better spent elsewhere.
Hmm. You mentioned it's significant that low and middle income countries, someone like Malaysia, were part of the development of these guidelines. And your last point on how um, the more expensive it is doesn't necessarily mean it's better, right? We can just use yeah. what we have, um, what is available, not necessarily at a higher cost. And I guess the issue with a lot of um, that people have with global guidelines is that often they may not necessarily be useful in low and middle income settings. So no. I guess in the case of these guidelines, if I got it right, it's it's to provide a set of um, broad recommendations that can be applicable in any setting? And also set, you know, that it has to be aspirational. Mm. So we had lots of fights. You know, it's like, you can't have this in a lower middle <laughs> income country. So it's like, we've got to have something. So if we make a recommendation, then they these people, and it's got to be a reasonable recommendation that we feel can be met by lower middle income country governments. So then these four practitioners or the geriatrician or the primary care physician or whatever healthcare professionals interested in falls in their setting is then able to go to a, a provider, a, a, a funder, whoever it might be in a, the lower middle income setting and say, uh, in order to prevent falls, we would like to do this. And then they can actually obtain resources to do that. Mm. Having been part of the community, uh, the, the committee and working group in developing the guidelines, Prof, and also being a clinician here in Malaysia, how do you see the guidelines helping Malaysian clinicians um, and, and patients when it comes to false prevention and management? Um, well, unfortunately, uh, we a little we lost a bit of ground, you know. Yeah, we we launched the guidelines, mm -hmm. and then some major thing happened, like a national election. Yeah, so um, and you know we actually positioned the Malaysian Falls uh, Malaysian Falls um, Network meeting uh, conference to be held, which was held in um, in the uh, in the first of October, uh, and what we actually positioned it so that. We could actually present the guidelines and then we have a group of people there to go forward and push for resources. And then, you know, we had, and then suddenly parliament is dissolved and um, everything was put on hold for a while. But hopefully that two months is not too much time lost. Um, what we want is to everyone see that they have a role uh, in force prevention and with and, and when you have guidelines, it makes it easy for people to see the need and also um, want to do something because they feel that this is a, this is an important issue. Uh, and you can really convince people that uh, this is, if you know, this is an important issue. And uh, what we have is actually a huge amount of support by the international fraternity, not just false people. Mm -hmm. So um, this guidelines was actually launched uh, simultaneously uh, so in uh, in the European Geriatric Medicine Society which was held in London and the, the minute it was actually presented um, the, the, the portal in Age and Aging which is a top journal for geriatric medicine actually opened up so it's now freely available in Age and Aging so that sets the tone into how important these guidelines are and uh, several international societies have actually um, endorse these guidelines, uh, including the Malaysian Society of Geriatric Medicine, um, so that um, we can persuade the entire world fraternity of the importance of this. Because otherwise, previously, it's like, oh, yeah, they're old already, what do you expect? You know, whereas this is really convincing people. Actually, it's important, and it's a big thing, it's an up-and-coming thing, and this is what you do, but these are also the people you can go to uh, if you uh, if you need help.
I understand that KKM also has guidelines that were published um, back in 2019 on falls for hospitalised older adults, right? So how do the world guidelines fit in with what we have with that guideline locally? Okay, um, the guidelines, of course, were published in 2019. Uh, the world has moved forward three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what? But the guidelines were instrumental, I have to say, because never before have we had a fall guideline simulation. And, um, but falls is one of, uh, hospitalised falls is different from normal community falls. Mm-hmm. So there is actually a specific section for falls and institutional care one of, in one of the work, one of the 12 working groups. So um, so and, uh, we do have to now update our hospital falls guidelines. I know people are swearing at me now. <laughs> more work. Yeah. Um, to actually align ourselves with the, uh, with the world falls guidelines. Bearing in mind that some localization still needs to happen. So I'm not going to, I don't think anybody wants to dictate what they decide because whatever they decide needs to be applicable to our Ministry of Health hospitals if it's Ministry of Health hospital guidelines. But they need to review the guidelines and decide whether whether they uh, they have to update the, the relation hospital force policy uh, and, uh, and to be more aligned to the workforce guidelines. Mm. In like in the name, right? These are guidelines which you then use and apply accordingly, depending That's on what right. resources you have, what environment you're in, um, mm. and sorry. And, and you know, you've just had a whole group of world experts uh, uh, who actually looked at the most recent literature, made life very easy for you, and provided you with the information on a plate. So that now is the time to actually make use of the information. I noted, Prof, that in the when I was looking at the website, you know, it mentioned that any intervention um, for falls prevention and management should be quote unquote person should be a person centered approach. What does that um, look like when we're talking about falls prevention and management? Okay, so um, it's been too long that people do not recognize older person's autonomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see older people coming to hospital and the doctor straight away just talks to the daughter. It's always the daughter. Uh, and then, you know, they make decisions. Uh, the patient just kind of is a bystander in this whole thing. But it's, it is very clear. And even we actually have a patient involvement group. In, um, and one of the most important thing when you administer any interventions, but particularly false prevention interventions, is it something that the patient engages with and is able to do. So um, everybody is different. Some patients uh, have a lot of resources at disposal, very good family support, and they want to have every single thing under the sun. Mm -hmm. So uh, in which case you can do all the, so if they've got a bit of cataract, uh, the blood pressure is a little bit, uh, the drops a bit when they stand up because of the medication, You, uh, they need a bit of physiotherapy, they need the home hazard success, they need the, the footwear properly done, they, they can have everything done at the same time. But there are other people who can't because they, have, they there's no one to bring them to hospital, there is uh, no, um, they, they are not so willing to sacrifice so much of their time attending multiple appointments. So you, there needs to be a contract with the patient, what they are able to pay for, what they're willing to undertake. Because we um, And of course you say, but you want to do everything, what? That would be maximal benefit. But if you want to do everything and the patient ends up doing nothing, then you end up with no benefits at mm-hmm. all. So the, the best intervention is one that the patient will actually adhere to. Mm. So a little bit is definitely a lot better than nothing. And to round up our discussion, Prof, you know, um, we've been talking a lot about false prevention and management, right? I mean, it's one thing to look at it from a from a kind of a medical perspective, but what else do you think we need 
to improve from a bigger picture perspective, right, in terms of how we address and manage falls um, in our society as a whole? And, and I think maybe I could frame it this way, right? What would you like to see um, coming from the Ministry of Health, especially now that we have a new government, that we knew we have a new health minister? Oh, that's a really loaded question. Yeah. You know, falls happens to at least one in six of our people over the age of 60. So please put more resources in it. You know, and we don't see anything on the national budget for geriatric care, let alone falls prevention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas there's something in the national budget for uh, dialysis, for cancer, all of which are less common than falls. So, you know, they. And and you want do you do wonder why this has happened? Because force costs so much money, um, and they know it. So they needs they need to put the money uh, the the money where their mouth is and actually do the right thing. Yeah. Um. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, but our government structure lends itself very poorly to develop to actually delivering something that is integrated and multidisciplinary like false prevention. Because we're not talking about just Ministry of Health. Mm-hmm. That's not going to work. You need the Ministry of uh, you need the Ministry of Transport because you need, you need to be able to get around and the bus needs to not drive off until the old person sits down, you know. Um, and then you need the ministry. So Anthony look, listen up. And then uh, you need the Ministry of Women, Welfare and Community Development. So um, and and unfortunately there's no older people in that entire very long ministry uh, name, mm. but older people is packed in there. Yes. Okay, there are all sorts of ethical issues and non-PC issues with this entire setting, but let's not go into that. Um, older people is packed under that ministry, which actually looks after a, a lot of things. It's a huge portfolio. Tiny little depa- division in that huge portfolio. So, and they um, have very little funding less than one-tenth of what the Ministry of Health gets. And then you have the Ministry of Health, which looks after all health issues and older people's policies. Not quite sure where it goes, you know. Geriatrics is funded in, under internal medicine. Uh, we don't have our own budget. But then when it comes to policies for older people, it's actually managed by the Ministry of Fam- the Family Division. So the geriatrics have no say in what goes in the policy that affects the older person. So who looks after false prevention? It can be any, it can almost be any um, any department. And of course, it's the Ministry of Works. You can do anything you like, but if the, if the pavements are dark and there's a little hole in the pavement, the older person, any, someone is still going to fall in. And the young person fall in, fix easily, old person fall in, might never come yes. out yeah, alive. Yeah. So uh, so the, um, the, the, the Ministry of Works also has to get involved. Local councils have to get involved. So many things. So we actually need the whole structure of government to be reconsidered. And one of the easiest things to deal with this is actually um, to deal with, uh, to actually look at it from an integrated point of view and even maybe come up with a ministry for older persons. Because until you restructure, we can't deliver something like this. Mm. Everyone's working in silos, isn't it? Yes, yes. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Prof. Thank you very much. And it's a privilege once again to join you. I've been speaking to Professor Dr. Tan Mopin, consultant geriatrician and member of the steering committee for the World Falls Guidelines. This has been Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. 
For more stories of the same kind, download the VFM app.